Hello and welcome to today's episode of Hacker Public Radio. I am Pokey, I'm the biggest jerk in the world, and I'll be hosting the show today for the second time, because we just did a half an hour's worth of show and I never hit record. So, uh, I guess we can attempt to remanufacture what we just did. Uh, joining me tonight is Morgellon, the low-tech mystic. Hey, Morgellon. Hey, how's it going, man? Pretty good. Deja vu. Taj, we have also with us tonight. How are you, Taj? What's good, everybody? And we have X1101. Howdy. So tonight on the Hacker Public Radio Audiobook Club, we're reviewing the audiobooks presentation of uh, The Crown Conspiracy by Michael J. Sullivan. The way that our book club works for anyone who's new is we do a brief review of the book up front without any spoilers. Uh, we take a break for a beverage, and we review a beverage of our, each of us reviews a beverage of our choice. And then after the beverage, uh, we are, spoilers are fair game. So if you have a fear of spoilers or want to avoid them, you'll want to cut the show off at the end of the beverage review if you have not listened to this audiobook or, or read the paper version. With that said, we'll get started again. Uh, guys, how did you like the book this time? I thought it was fantastic. Uh, I come mostly from a background of science fiction, cyberpunk, and not a lot of fantasy. Some of the, the more classic fantasy works and some young adult fantasy. But this definitely wasn't young adult on purpose, but at the same time was truly family friendly and very, very enjoyable. Yes, totally agree. And uh, as I said before, <laughs> I'm going to have a hard time not saying that. Um, it's the kind of it's a kind of family friendly that a lot of family friendly entertainment isn't. A lot of stuff is written for children and then panders to adults by slipping in jokes and references that children wouldn't be expected to get. Whereas this is a thoroughly grown-up story that is just told in a safe way, and the the content is safe for children. Um, and, and that's something that I, I really, really appreciate. I, I love that I could... Um, you know, burn a copy to CD for my mom, as well as listen in the car with my daughter to this one. It was it was great. Uh, Taj, yeah, um, take two. Um, I I really liked the 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 audiobook. I thought it was really good. It took me a while to get into, um, but once the ball started rolling, it was very hard for me to put down. Um, I blew through this pretty quick. Um, I really enjoyed it. The, Nathan Lowell is a great voice actor. Um, he did a great job on this book specifically. Um, having listened to last month's book club, um, I think he did a better job doing the voice acting on this than he did his own book. Um, I don't know if there's just because there's more, more characters who are different in this book than there were in his book. Um, but I thought that his voice acting really shined in this. I also really enjoyed the book for me. It also started out pretty slow. Uh, the first chapter or two was kind of, uh, I'm not sure, and then it was, boom, I need it all, and I need it all now. I think I finished the book in two sittings. Um, I spent a lot of time in the car, so I have plenty of time to listen as well. So, But, uh, yeah, it was two days, and I believe I kind of finished through it. Um, the uh, the audio quality, the narrator was very good. It also it kind of took me a minute to warm up to the narrator. I have to say that um, I don't know what it was, but there was something at first that, uh, but uh, overall, 
really enjoyed it. Um, I like the music. I really enjoy the interludes in between some of the scenes. Uh, it was a nice touch that not all audio books do. So that way it kind of gives me a oh, we're, we're changing the setting now. Like we're going to jump forward ahead in some time, something. But there's little things like that that really, really polished the book. It almost it made it a very professional recording and production for something that I can go and download for free. It was very rewarding to listen to. Yes, I, I totally agree. Music selection for this one was fantastic. I, I love the opening music, how it, it came in with like a, a bass line riff that, that just, for me, got my heart pumping, got my blood flowing and ready for the, that particular episode of the story. And I listened to this one, I think I've listened to it probably three times. I don't know how quickly I went through it the first time. It couldn't have taken long. The second time was real quick because I just couldn't stop listening. And this third, most recent time, I knew it was for the book club. And I knew it was going to be like a month between when we recorded the last show and when we're recording this one. So I intentionally, I, I had to force myself not to listen to more than one episode a day. Uh, and, and I even broke that rule a couple times. So, yeah, this one is, is a hard one to put down. Say so it made uh, my evening doing the dishes a lot more fun. Make dinner, put the little one to bed, start working on dishes, throw my headphones on, listen to at least one chapter book. It was, it was enjoyable. Yeah, it sure was. And that's that's something that um is interesting too is because as as difficult as this book is or was for me to stop listening to, you know, once I get into a chapter as hard as it was to turn it off, I still had no problem falling asleep to it. It wasn't so, you know, jarring. There was nothing um, you know, no drastic volume changes, no uh specific pace that would that would change so drastically that it kept me awake. And some some things can. Um I still was able to fall asleep to this and, you know, wake up listening to something else. No, that's that's a really good point, and I apologize for the audio. Um, one of the things that uh, we touched upon, it was kind of like young adultish or whatever, and it just popped into my head. It, it reminds me a lot. It has not so much story-wise, but the feel. It has the feel of The Princess Bride, that movie. Just one of those good, enjoyable, all-around stories. Yeah, yeah, that's a good there was There was... Uh you know, good guys and bad guys, and you, you knew who was who as well, well <laughs> except for the mystery part of it. But yeah, you, you, you could kind of pick them out, their characters. You knew who was who, except when you didn't. Right. Well, once you did, until you did, you didn't, but once you did, you did. Now, you guys had said in our first attempt at uh, not recording this, um, that it reminded you guys a lot of, of D&D, &D, uh, like playable adventures. Yeah, the talking about the characters some, they felt like good interpretations of some of the very fairly common archetypes, but with enough depth in them to make them actual characters rather than just, you know, this is, you know, generic thief, this is generic fighter. These were, you know, people with history and personality, quirks and yeah, and earlier we somebody had mentioned I forget who it was that like you you're dropping right into these these characters' lives, and so you definitely get the sense that there is a past that you're not addressing in this story um, that makes those characters seem a little deeper than than they are portrayed in, in just this book. Um, I, I hope I don't know I haven't read any of the other books. I hope they go forward in the books and you kind of uncover a little more of that because I think it would be interesting. 
No, that was, uh, I'm a, I'm an avid D&D player. Like, we, we get together each week, and me and our buddies, we play D&D. And the book had a very D&D kind of feel to it for me. And there was a lot of, there were several scenes where they're giving descriptions, different areas, or the characters, and they're kind of giving a rundown of what that character's wearing or what he's got. And in my mind, that was giving me subtle clues to, well, why does he have three of those? Or what's the, you know, like, you don't just drop that out with going, hmm, that's got something a little more to it than just a normal item. And so, in the back of my mind, I'm waiting for instances where that's going to come to light. And so, for me, there was a lot of foreshadowing and hints built into the book, which was very enjoyable. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I, I didn't pick up on the fact that, you know, he carried three swords until a third time I listened to it. I don't think it's a spoiler. I think that was in the beginning. But, yeah, I, I listened to the book three times before I realized that. Yeah, I can't wait to get into the spoiler part because there's all kinds of stuff I want to talk about. But, uh, but yeah, the 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 three swords that they you know that was the first description you get of a guy, and that that's what was going through my mind the whole time. I'm waiting to see what sword does what. You know, you just don't carry around three swords for no reason. Yeah, that's that's a big tip off, at least for the adventurer mind. There's yeah, three swords are a hindrance in some ways. So yeah. So they've got to be more useful than they are a burden to carry to be with carrying three different swords. Either that or he really likes his bling. He gets excitable with choice. Uh, yeah, these guys spend a lot of time on foot. And I can tell you from walking around on foot and carrying a backpack, uh, every day I try to think of what I can leave out of the backpack <laughs> before I head out. Uh, well, maybe, Pokey, if you leave the second and third swords behind next time, you might be a little better off. Yeah, I know, I know, especially if one takes two hands just to swing it. I think it's got to be many pounds, I can only imagine. So I'm kind of lost as to where our conversation is or was because we said so much, and now I don't know what we said during the recording and what was said before the recording, and I, I apologize to our listeners and, and to all of you guys for, uh, for the screw up. Did anybody uh, write in? Yes. Yeah, we definitely yes. had that write in. <laughs> yes, thank you. Colin, who was on the show last week, wrote in, and he, he wrote uh, a piece for each of our segments. So for the, the pre-spoiler segment, he wrote, uh, quote, Overall, I really enjoyed the book and the story that's told. It was a little strange at first, as you became accustomed with the fantasy world, given that races other than humans were few and far between, although they were very important and they did appear. I'd say that the story had all the right elements, although I think it perhaps would have benefited the story as a standalone piece to have explored the world itself a bit more and add context to the world. It's definitely well set up for the remainder of the series. I can also say that Nathan Lowell does the audio version proud. Very well read. I would definitely recommend it for people to listen to. End quote. Boy, I did a much better job reading that the second time. And, uh, and yeah, and the only thing I, I would comment on uh, on Collins... Uh, quote there um, would be about expanding the world. I'm not sure how that could be done without um, making the story longer or adding a lot of uh, uh, you know detail to the setting that might slow the the book down. I'm not sure how that would have affected it. Uh, I, I hesitate to make a, a, you know to, to say that such a drastic change would be an improvement. Yeah, see, I think the book was short, but. I want to say economical, that's not really the best description. Because of all of the, the background that's implied, you get the feeling that it's there without going into it, so it feels bigger than it is. Yeah. No, exactly. It was very short, but it was also very rich. Like, I, 
I think I said the last recording, or somebody said it, whatever. It was, it was like a week, a week and a half slice of their time. That's what we got. We didn't get any kind of foreshadowing. We didn't, don't know what's going to happen after this. It was just, this is what happened this week, week and a half, and then a couple days later, and there was a lot of stuff going on, and as, there was a lot to unfold, and like I said, it started out really slow, and I'm kind of wondering, what is this? And then, I'm picking up on this, and picking up on that, and it's, yeah, like, I I think I'm probably going to end up having to sit down and read the actual other books if they're not going to going to pop out on an audio version because that's appointment. You get to the end of the book and there's the, hey, stay tuned for the, you know, first chapter of the next book. And I stopped the book there and went back to patio books looking for the second audio book, which I couldn't find, which was kind of a disappointment. So yeah, I'm definitely probably going to end up just to, uh, I don't know. And I'll, I'll talk about some of that reasoning, I guess, when we get into the spoiler section. I got some big questions. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I agree with Colin. I, I there's there's so many things that are hinted at about this world. It's kind of hard to go into without doing spoilers. That as soon as it dropped, I was like, oh well, how did that happen? And there's a couple instances where it's explained, but really for the most part, it's just kind of left up to your imagination, which I guess in a way is is a strength. But the another part of me is like, well, that could be so cool. Um, I want to hear more about it. Um, I don't I don't want to end this book though. I think this book um it, it's served well by its length the way it is. I think if you expanded it out more, it would probably um, get slow. I think it, it keeps its action pace um, pretty good at the length it is. And I think that's one of the reasons it feels like a D&D adventure is because it's very well paced. The other thing it kind of reminded me of is I've playing a lot of uh, the Elder Scrolls games and the kind of the, the deep history and the richness reminds me of that, though it's much more condensed. Yeah, I think if I had a choice, I would say give me another story and just throw some detail in that as well. This, you know what? This is a, a a a story, a sequel to this anyway. This would be something I would I would like kickstart. I would contribute to a Kickstarter or fund anything or something. This I I definitely would. I I, I would love to have more of this with Nathan Lowell reading specifically. Pokey, did you say? I know. I think you were the one that said this that your daughter bought the uh, ebook of the second book of this. No, it wasn't. It was another book by Michael uh, Michael J. Sullivan. Uh, we we bought a, a Kindle version of one of his other stories. I think it was a, a sh- like a novella. I think it was a much shorter story. Um, but yeah, we we liked it that much that we went out and bought more of his his stuff. And I know she didn't. She said she didn't like it that much. But I think that's because um, for the same reason. Uh, I, I think she missed a lot of it, you know in, in the detail. And I, I should probably read it too and discuss it with her because she has asked me to. I just I don't get a lot of time to read, so I haven't been able to do that yet. Shame on me. I'm a bad parent too. Not only do I not hit record, I don't even read the book to my kid. You're a monster. A monster. That to my list of things not to. Yeah, right on. New parent. Yeah, take some notes. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm. I don't know what more to say or what not to say, but uh, we've been recording for 20 minutes, and since I feel so lost, I think we should just go to the drink review section and move on. Unless anybody's got anything else to say for our first section here. Morgellon, have you got anything in your cup holder? Uh, well, when I wasn't driving, <laughs> I'd like to make that clear. Uh, yeah, no, when I was enjoying it at the apartment, I had some uh, nice bourbon and Coke. So I'm a big fan of that. So that that's what I enjoyed. Oh, right on. Do you have a, a favorite brand of bourbon? Um, when, when I'm feeling uh, spicy or I guess whatever, uh, I like to get the uh, the 
Woodford's Reserve, uh, but uh, just something regular. I like the Evan Williams. So they're both local to uh, where I live, so it's kind of, I don't know, makes it a little specialer. <laughs> Is that even a word? Yeah, I well, think so. Well, color me jealous that you live so close to bourbon country. Yeah. Color me, you must live in the same part of the country as me and we're yelling. Yeah, no, I'm actually in Louisville, Kentucky right now. But yeah, I grew up in Bargetown, the uh, quote-unquote bourbon capital of the world. So, yeah. <laughs> well, then this bottle sitting beside me might have come from just down the road. I am enjoying a, the, actually the very last of my bottle, Wild Turkey One Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Oh, I've never had Wild Turkey. How is that? Well, let me give it another sip and I'll tell you firsthand. Excellent. Not overly, um, not too much rye so that it's not, doesn't have the really big bite. Nice smooth finish. Excellent. Now, is that a, a special wild turkey or is that just regular? Well, it's the, the 101 proof is the only thing special about it. They've, there's a, a regular one that's more like the 35-ish proof, or 30 or 35%, like a 70, but the 101 proof's just got a little kick to it. Okay. I always thought wild turkey was a, a bottom shelf liquor. The 101 is not. Uh, excellent. Good to know. I, I usually, if I drink bourbon, I usually try to drink Knob Creek. That's always been, that's been my favorite since I tried it. I, I used to drink the Maker's Mark, but I think Knob Creek uh, topples that on my list anyway. But that's good to know about, about Wild Turkey. Both of those are a little heavy on the rye, a bitey taste. Okay, okay. Good to know. You should also give uh, Woodford's, that Morgellon mentioned, a, a go. It's a little spendy, but very good. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'll try that. Um... I, I'm not the, uh, I, I can't drink like Jack Daniels and Jim Beam. Those those ones don't do it for me anymore. Uh, the Jim Beam story I could tell some other time, but uh, yeah, no, no more of that stuff for me. Taj, what do you got? I'm playing it safe tonight. I've got a big old glass of homemade fresh squeezed lemonade that I made for dinner tonight. Oh, right on. You got fresh lemons down there or, or down there? I don't know where you're at, if you even care to share. Actually, since we're on the topic, I live in the same city as Morgellon, apparently, and I didn't know that. Um, I'm right outside of Louisville, Kentucky. Um, we don't have lemons here. Um, it's not quite hot enough for them here. So I wish we did. I'd plant a billion of them. Okay, cool. Now, what's since you made it yourself, what's your uh, recipe for lemonade? Like, what are your ratios of, of lemon juice to water to sugar? Usually I do it um, by just kind of taste. I <laughs> just kind of taste it as I go along. Uh, I put about, I had a pitcher. Um, I squeezed, I think, six lemons into it. And instead of sugar, um, I used uh, stevia powder. Uh, trying Our whole family's trying to cut back on the sugar. So um, it's it works really well. Um, it has a little bit of an aftertaste, but it's not as bad as like your aspartame or your saccharin that is usually um, your fake sugars out there. Yeah, definitely. Those things kill me. Uh, yeah, a lot of the guys at work drink the stevia now. They put it in their coffee. That's that's cool. Yeah, I've always done it by taste, too. My family hates when I make a pitcher and sip in the side of the jug. Well, that's the only way to cook anything, isn't it? By taste. I believe so. Here, here. I agree. A recipe is more like guidelines than actual rules, unless you're baking. I was just going to say, unless you're baking. Yeah, I'm playing it safe tonight, too. I've got... Uh, I've got a cup of tea. I've got a uh, Fujoy brand oolong tea, and um, I, I kind of like it. It's not quite as good as what you get in the Chinese restaurants, but I think that might be just because my box is a little more stale. It's probably the same brand. Definitely in what you were drinking last time. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, it's nice. It's it's um, eh, it's um, nice. I mean, I, I 
don't know how to properly brew a cup of tea, but since it comes in little paper bags, it, you know, I don't think it matters that much anyway. But I like it. It's decent enough. And we, I usually, um, you seem to only be able to buy these giant boxes, like 100 tea bags, which for me, that's enough for two or three years. So I kind of separate them out and I vacuum seal them and then throw them in my, my freezer, in the, like the Sub-Zero freezer. And that seems to keep it a little fresher anyway. Yeah, that would be my concern with tea that's packaged in bulk. If it's going to take you two or years to drink, the tea you drink at the threes isn't going to be any good. Yeah, I think by vacuum sealing it, though, it, it keep you know, I think that helps a lot. It keeps the oxygen off of it, and then throwing it in the freezer seems to help quite a bit. Yeah, I do that with coffee beans, too. Yeah, right on. Um, Colin has a beverage review for us as well, uh, and he says, quote, Having reviewed an ale I knew very well last time around, this time I have gone for a beer that I've never tried before, but caught my eye at the local supermarket. It's a beer by Innocent Gun, who are based in Scotland. It's labeled as the Innocent Gun Original and is an oak-aged beer. Apparently it's matured in oak for 77 days. The description says it is a smooth Scottish beer with hints of toffee, vanilla, and oak. The taste is definitely that of an oak-matured drink. It's quite deep and drinks quite well. It's fairly light, but not quite as light as I'd usually drink. It's quite nice if I would suggest that anyone who can find it nearby give it a try. Oh, it's quite nice and I would suggest. Jeez, why did I read that wrong twice? And he's got a link for our show notes, which you'll be able to find in our show notes. I've had um, Innocent Gun also does a, a bourbon barrel aged that is fantastic. I've not had their original. Oh, man, I had a bourbon, I've had two bourbon barrel aged beers uh, lately, recently, and one was spectacular, and the other one blew the lid off my head even more. And they were, they were both by uh, the Kentucky Bourbon Beer Company or something like that, I forget exactly, but wow, were they good. Is that the one we had down in Boston? Oh, yeah, that's right, it was, that's right, I had the one, uh, it was on tap in the bar there, you're right, that was... That was fantastic. That was, um, I think it was a bourbon barrel porter, and I and the other one I had was the bourbon barrel ale, ale, and I liked the porter even better. Yeah, that was phenomenal. But yeah, Innis and Gun. It almost sounds like Innocent Gun if you read it too quick, but it's it's Innis. And again, we'll have the link in the show notes. And I'll I'll dig up a link to the uh, the wild turkey one and send you that as well. Cool. Thank you. Now, Morgellon, I know we said we wouldn't call on you just in case you were in a spot that you couldn't get back to us, but if you can get back to us, I know you were dying to talk about some spoilers. See, that's why we shouldn't have called. I shouldn't have done that. All right, how about you other guys? You want to get started? I think one of the things that really threw me off at the beginning and kind of just the, those first couple chapters, the same thing as Morgellon was talking about, I think the thing that threw me off is this is a mystery novel with kind of the trappings of fantasy around it. And as soon as I kind of latched onto that, I think it made a lot more sense to me and I got more into it. But I think it's definitely the mystery part of it is the dominant thing in this book. It's a mystery story with a fantasy setting more than a, a fantasy story. Yeah, I get that. I can definitely get that. You're you're always trying to figure out who done it and why and what's at, at stake here. Yeah, it's not that it's a bad thing that it's that. Actually, I kind of enjoy that. But it was when I kind of read it, I was assuming that I was going to just drop right into a fantasy world. And you kind of do. That first chapter is is definitely fantasy. But at the same time, um, I think they're setting up some, some crumbs that you need to follow. And especially when you hit chapter two, and it's almost completely different characters um, that are unrelated. I, it kind of just jarred me around a little bit, and I didn't I didn't realize really until several chapters later what that first chapter really was doing. 
Well, they weren't unrelated characters. It was just you only got a. They were the very, very tail end of the first chapter before you met the the main characters. Yeah, and I felt like that first chapter was there to set up your expectation, or at least to to not make you doubt the characters later. It's just there to say, look, here's how clever these guys really are. So all these fantastical things that are about to happen uh, could happen to these specific people like this. That, that it just helped you to believe that it wasn't such a stretch. Some of the some of the things. Yes, they really are that good. First chapter will be their resume. Right, right, right. Like, had it not been for the first chapter where, you know, they, they break in and they're able to cut through the roof and then uh, shoot the, the rope with an arrow, you wouldn't believe that he would be so, so. and I, I, was, I get their names wrong, but you wouldn't believe that the, the guy who's the fighter would be so good with a sword uh, later on where he's, he's dueling like these champions. Think that one's Hadrian? I think so, yeah. And the first chapter really speaks also to um, oh god I'm blank on his name but his partner's uh, skill as a as a thief. Right, right. It is more about uh, is, is it Royce or R- R- it's Royce, isn't it? It is Royce. Thank you. Yeah, it it is more about him, but it it makes it believable. Okay, well these guys are partners, so they they obviously both have to be pretty skilled. The one thing I didn't really care for that they resolve later in the series, and that's all I'll say about spoil in future books, is that they give the name of their little organization as Raira, but never any indication as to why or what it means. The whole time I was listening to that book, every time they mention it, I'm like, that's an interesting name. Why? So had you read the other books before or after this one? I finished the audio of this one and then immediately started reading the next one. At which they give the explanation for that, I think, within the first couple of years. Yeah, they do have that first chapter at the end of this one, and, and yeah, they say what Raiera means, and yeah, I, I gotta get that next book, too. Did you guys have a favorite character? Was there any one that stood out in particular? I definitely wanted to see Ezra Hod, like, just be awesome. Um, they let him out, and he just kind of disappears. Uh, he's one of the characters that I'm like, they have to do something with him in the sequels, because just somebody who is that old and all around that long has to have some coolness left. Even without his hands. That makes him more awesome. He doesn't need them. Yeah, he was... I mean, without even saying so, without giving you any evidence uh, except for just his own words, he is one of the most badass characters in any book I've ever read or listened to. Well, I mean, the fact that he can take that spell that he was bound and flip it inside out with, it seemed like, unless I missed something, just a thought. I mean, you know, 900 years worth of thought figuring out how, but without any, you know, incantation, silly wand waving, it just flipped kind of definitely speaks to his badassery well and i think part of it is is they build all the guards build up this character that they're like don't trust anything he says and i, I guess you kind of just assume that, they're, that he's going to be this swarmy like mustache twirling villain and they walk in and he's like all right here's here's the deal i'm just laying it out this is what happened blah 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 and uh you know he's it just just as simple as he was um and his delivery made him almost more menacing in a way <laughs> that he was just like i don't even have to be flashy this this is what went down yeah and the fact that you have no idea whether he was telling the truth or not is just adds to me just adds this badassery because whether it's true or not both stories would hold up perfectly well under his explanation and i think that that i mean it's one of the many times they use to uh illustrate ulrich's naivety that he takes it at face value and takes action, whereas Hadrian and Royce are like, well, this is kind of our only choice, but still don't trust you. 
One question I was left with with him, which to me, I, I felt like it should have been answered in this story, that sh it belonged in the context of this story, not in some separate story, is how he communicated with Ulrich's sister. Um, you know what I mean? Because she didn't have the signet ring, so she couldn't have gotten in unless he cast some spell which let her in, or she did, but she didn't seem like that gifted a magician yet, so... That that left me wondering. That's that's one hole in this story that I felt should have been answered in the context of this story. Here you go, man. That signet ring wasn't Ulrich's until the king was assassinated. So I was kind of assuming that she was either palming it from the king, something like that, or she had access to whatever the, the stone was in that ring to be able to get through. So uh, those were kind of some of the things that jumped to mind when you bring up that. That's a good point, being that she was schooled at all in the art, and um, as proved by the lock on her door being a gem lock, if she had recognized what the lock was and what the gem in the signet ring was, she wouldn't necessarily needed the ring, but rather a stone that could approximate that well enough. Yeah, but she would have needed the signet ring to get past the guards. They weren't. They wouldn't have let her by just because she had... They weren't going to let these guys, just because they, they had a key that opened the door. Well, and the family has some connection to dwarves already, so in my mind it wouldn't be out of reason that she might have a dwarf helper that would help her maybe just even make a replica of it um, if she did whatever to get him to do that. Yeah, maybe. I, I gotta think it's some sort of uh, telepathy or something. I, I don't think she had an audience with him. That's the only thing I can imagine. And see, I got the I got the opposite impression. In some way, she was granted audience with him, which caused all these things to transpire. I've, I got the same impression as well. Because didn't uh, Ezra Hodden say that he either gave her a potion or taught her how to make a potion? Yeah, he taught her how to make a potion with this guy. Would have been much more convincing uh, as far as like, okay, now he, he's... Whether he's manipulating her or whether he's opened her eyes to the truth, either way, a personal audience with him is is more convincing as the uh, explanation for that than you know some sort of crystal ball conversation. And one of the things that I I felt like was kind of just dropped and wasn't mentioned more than a couple times was the fact that her father sent her to the university to study that stuff, um, and that everybody else was not pleased with that decision. So it, part of me wonders if her father had something to do with it, um, and maybe got those two connected. But then I don't understand what his motivation would be to do that. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. Uh, I didn't get that she went to the university to study magic, though. I just got that she went there to be educated, and that happened to be, you know, one department at the university, and, and she glommed on to it. Yeah, I got the impression that it was very much at her urging that she was allowed to go to university, and then she sought out the art to learn, rather than being sent there for that purpose. I liked the monk. He was my favorite character. Uh... Of course, I'm forgetting his name now, but he, I loved that guy. I loved how simple he was. I love how big the world was to him. And I liked seeing the world through his eyes. It, it you know, it kind of addressed the issue that this is a new and different place. It kind of made me think of of my daughter. She's 15 months old and just everything is and wonder amazing to her. You know, you get a, a grown man who has that same feeling and can articulate it better is, I mean, he has that childlike wonder with everything. It's, it's really enjoyable to, uh, to hear. 
I thought he was good as comic relief because um, you get quips between the other characters and that are kind of funny. But I think there he had more times where I laughed out loud um, just to his reaction to something. And I think that that was kind of needed in some of it that um, when things got a little too dark, he was always there to just kind of be like, oh, that's a horse. That, that, that's amazing. They're even prettier than horses. <laughs> yes. Since listening to this book, I've been trying to watch horses walk to see if their foot really does land, and I can't imagine how that would work. Yeah, I'm going to jump in here real fast. I'm going to have to uh, disappear for a second, so I'm going to just rattle off a whole bunch of things. But um, for me, um, the wizard. The wizard, uh, that being introduced to the story and everything, when I finished the book, I was left feeling like this was a bog. Okay, so... Let me get this straight. You guys go in, and uh, you meet this wizard, and he's been in here for a thousand years. This dude just locked up for a thousand years. Okay, we're going to talk to him, and then, um, yeah, we're, we're going to let him go. Okay, it's one of the most powerful wizards ever. He's been trapped for a thousand years. You're going to let him go, and then we get out into the world, and he's like, yeah, I'm going to go this way. Deuces, guys. Um what? And then no no other mention of this guy? I, I'm sorry. I don't trust any wizard that's powerful enough deemed that we're going to lock you up. And by the way, we're going to keep you in here for a thousand years so that you can't die, so that you have nothing to do but think. Yeah, I don't trust anybody that's all super powerful and had nothing to do but think about how ticked they are for the last thousand years. Yeah, <laughs> nothing good to come from that. Yeah, that, that's definitely going to get me to read the other book there because I, I was I was losing my mind on that part um that that was a big thing the, for me don't forget the hand hand removal that that's fairly significant too that would definitely add to me being very irritated I can't believe he didn't take the monk with him just I mean he he admitted three times he was clever and he's got hands you know why not but uh, I also really enjoyed um, what the author did. The, starting out the book, the first couple chapters, um, I kept waiting for the magic and stuff to happen. Like the, uh, they sneak in, they clearly steal the papers out of the safe, and it's like they start describing how they did it, and I'm waiting for what's the magical stuff that they did here how did this go down and it's like oh yeah we well we had this crossbow was it super magical no no this guy just crafted it and you're like okay but that's still kind of neat and then why'd you get in oh yeah well no we just saw the hole hole in through the roof okay okay so and in a, in a way i felt like uh it was almost kind of like the the author was kind of almost poking fun at the reader that needs that magic high fantasy thing going on to really enjoy it because he gives it to you so well later on in the book but at the beginning it's like he's i felt like i was faked out a couple times where i'm waiting for this or waiting for that to happen i said you get uh they describe hadrian and the swords and it's like okay well the one on his back's got to be some awesome cleaver thing or maybe a bust through stone who knows what it does and they, um with uh royce his knife like there, there's something going on with his knife that I would love to know more and more about because they they multiple times describe the hilt and the jewel and the things going on with it and uh, I, well that might have been the the murder weapon I get the two daggers descriptions either way that they mention his knife in the description several times which makes me think that that is something bad and like the the few times that he kind of uses it in the book they don't go into a lot of detail but he misses some people up with it so it's like. Yeah, I'd like to know more about that. Um, the dude hates some dwarfs. <laughs> Love to know what's going on with that. <laughs> That's got to be a good story. <laughs>
X1 101, you were just about to say something about the horses, too. Oh, um, you were mentioning watching horses walk to see if they really do their, their back hoof land exactly where the front was. What I was going to say is, rather than trying to watch them walk, I was looking at their uh, the tracks to see if you see four sets of tracks or really just two to see if that's really how things happen. Yeah, well, you know, I haven't had a chance to get close to horses, so I, would, I haven't had a chance to look at them either way. But yeah, I would check out both for sure. So what about uh, Ezra Hodden? Do you guys think he's trustworthy, or is he off to be the most nefarious person who ever lived again? I'm not entirely sure those are mutually exclusive. Yeah, that's true. He could have just been telling the truth. Uh, see, because I, I, now he, he sounded like such a bad guy at first, and when I listened to his parts of the book, all I could think of was, this guy's lying. He's lying so bad. But then... The, the priest, the high priest, or whatever he was from the church, he turned out to be such a rotten character. It makes me think maybe Ezra Hodden is a good guy after all. Or at least was a good guy. Being locked up for a thousand years, lots of good guys would turn into bad guys at that point. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. They might have created their own worst nightmare by locking that guy up. Especially, like I said, if he if he's just that frank about it and, and says it, whether he's lying or not, it's, it's pretty... Uh, significant when he gets out that he's been locked up for a thousand years with no hands um i could see him being trouble for them this guy he he got locked away at a time when it was a golden age so you think about somebody in our time being locked away for a thousand years and then you get back out and it's like medieval times there's uh you know like i can see this guy wanting to go back and recreate his own golden age he has the power he has the skill like this guy can do it and he's got the motivation so like why not go back and change the world take it back to what you know in his mind he's improving the world he's taking it back to that golden age um yeah <laughs> I, I look i look uh, i can see that happening yeah right after i kill all these guys that locked me up because he's got the knowledge and he's basically a magical weapon of mass destruction yeah yeah exactly but you'll note that he didn't kill all of the gardens and such who'd spent the last thousand years making sure he didn't get out uh no but uh fate worse than death comes to mind no worse than they put him through. Yeah, or volunteered for that matter. That the way he handled that definitely does lead lend some credibility to him being uh, the whole scene as they leave definitely lends some credibility to him being maybe not such a bad guy. His explanation about the faces in the wall, him not just you know incinerating all of the guards, those things kind of lead lead me to lean a little bit towards maybe it was a frame job. Either that, or if you're as powerful as he is, you're not going to take time to stomp on every ant on your way out. A thousand years would maybe make you fairly spiteful, though. Yeah, I mean, if you can spray a, a you know a can of hairspray over a lighter at the ant hill, you might stomp all those ants. Just, just, uh, <laughs> you know, what I mean, just on principle. But yeah, I was kind of left with the the impression that that he was perhaps framed. But yeah, he he, I got the idea that he was a good guy anywhere, or at least a neutral guy. Maybe he's got his own. He clearly, he has his own motivations, and he's going to carry through with those. And and maybe morality doesn't enter into it at all. And which you know would would mean by my logic would mean that yes, he was framed, and that's about all there is to it. Uh, I like that he rewarded intelligence and cleverness though um when royce reasoned with him about you know how or why he should help them figure out who killed the king it was simply a a match of wits there that he rewarded uh, by telling him that he didn't have to tell him that and he said as much um but then he did so maybe he'll build a nice meritocracy 
and, and I definitely did see him recognizing some uh, real cleverness in in the monk. I also am not recalling his name for figuring out so quickly that all he did was take the the enchantment they had put him under and turn it inside out. Yeah, I kind of wondered, like, when he figured that out, I thought that maybe he had in the back of his mind that, oh, there are no more wizards like me, but maybe this guy could learn. And, like, maybe just kind of plotting that he would be his apprentice, but then that didn't turn out. And he has hands. I I don't know. I I still think with the... I go back to the same argument that this, this dude would look at these people like idiots as far as he, you know... Dude's coming from the golden age. You're looking at people that, can, you know, it, it's amazing they got in here, much less are able to reason with me. Oh, maybe I won't kill you. You're, you're kind of entertaining. <laughs> I don't know. I just don't trust the wizards. <laughs> I love the way he talked, I, it, how his language was older, and following that made me concentrate more on on his words and what he was saying and, like, the meanings behind it. And uh, I, I you know, I, I like that as a as a device. I, I enjoyed it. I thought that was one of the strong points of Nathan Lowell when he was doing the part where he's trying to talk like they're talking, and you could just tell the frustration he was having with trying to change every word to to match them. It was it wasn't something that was in the words that he was saying. It was just the way that they were performed. That was it was really funny, but at the same time conveyed something about that he was at least trying, but it was really irritating for him. I found that hilarious. He was working out the words, and he, you to you, what? That that makes no sense. <laughs> it was yeah, it was a very uh, enjoyable part of the book. The English language. Yeah, and at the same time, I thought he did a really good job of speaking in Ezra Hodden's true voice. That was really smooth. It it came across well. I'd have a hard time reading that out loud. Hell, I had a hard time reading Colin's letter out loud the first time, and that's, you know, just Oxford English versus American English. Speaking of Colin, he says for the spoiler uh, segment of our show, quote, I definitely liked and would recommend this book. I think the characters of the thieves, uh, Hadrian and Royce, come through well, and they establish themselves very well in the story whilst allowing the other characters to take their roles. I would listen to it again happily and would like to follow the story on and learn uh, more about this world. I have two slight criticisms in the story, and then I felt uh, for a story that had a lot of journeys in it, I did not really get the sense of the prince's group traveling all that much. They only ever seemed to arrive and leave from a destination, with the exception of the attempted execution of the prince. I would have liked to hear a bit more about the journey, the surroundings, and maybe uh, some more background about the world the story took place in. I also feel that the book may have had a little too much setting up for the oncoming series rather than enriching this story. It may be a bit harsh, but comes back to my first point, and a couple of events in the story, such as the wizard Ezra Hodden wandering off immediately, never to be seen again in the story, or the dwarf's disappearance, and a lot of looking to the future by characters such as Archibald, the bishop, Royce, and Hadrian. I particularly liked the set pieces in the book. My favorites were the attack on Melangar, which lasted for some time and was very enjoyable, especially Royce and Hadrian's exploits. At the end of the sequence, you really imagine Pickering's sword coming down and snapping Bragas in half. The visit to Gutaria prison to see Ezra Hodden was also very good, albeit a little short, perhaps, when it came to the escape. End quote. Thanks again, Colin. 
with respect to his comment about just uh, leaving and arriving, that kind of goes back to a conversation about the D&D. Now, I know at least in a couple of adventures I've played it, you only talk about the road if something happens. Otherwise, you travel and you arrive. No, and anybody who's done a lot of traveling or anything like that, or I, I don't know, I've read a lot, or quote-unquote read, listen to a lot of audiobooks, uh, Robert Jordan's Will of Time series, books that, that tr- take over on that uh, traveling route and stuff like that, it's it's kind of boring, and I mean, that's that's the most miserable part, miserable part of the journey, and usually nothing exciting really happens, so yeah, that, to go back, it, it's kind of fine to skip over that, um, yeah, I had no problem with that. Todd, you're about to say? I forget what I was. <laughs> I got I got carried away in what you guys were talking about. I forgot what I was going to say. All right. Um, yeah, I was going to say the only thing that I felt was missing from their journey was just their sense of exhaustion and hunger. And I mean, they really had no supplies. They went a long way. They were sleeping. Um, this was the onset of winter. So, and they were, you know, up in the mountains. So this was just getting worse and worse and worse for them. And, you know, I had to, I had to remind myself, you know, to remember that, that this journey was so harsh for them. This was so bad on them. This was not something happening in June, um, you know, and, and hunting and gathering was going to be easy while they were wandering out there. Yeah, I'll give you that. I mean, because it's been a long time laboring the travel, do miss other than their kind of few pointed rooks about how tired they, how much that saps out of traveling, adverse conditions for that. But uh, for for me, the the traveling scenes and stuff like that, I think it also helped to uh, develop a lot of the prince slash new king's character as well. The uh, the prince king, uh, he he really grew on me. Uh, at first, I the the author does a our reader does an excellent job with this voice, but, you know, I can hear him coming through, and, uh, at the beginning of the book, I'm like, dude, you are a total D-bag, uh, uh, couldn't stand him, did not like this character, you know, they need to get rid of this dude, what's going on, and then, uh, like Colin said, by the time they're sieging the castle, and he just, he's at the point where he's like, no, look, I'm the king, I'm gonna take off my helmet, I'm gonna walk up to the gate, I don't care if you shoot me, cause I'm the king, this is my castle, GTFO, yeah, I like, yeah, okay, you're cool, dude. Like, that definitely really, really grew on me. I think his his character was probably uh, one of the more enjoyable progressions, I guess. Start, just starting as a guy, I really couldn't stand, and then into a really lovable character. It's like, wow, you really grew up in four days. That's what I was just going to say. He did. He, he grew on the reader because he grew. He himself grew. At the beginning, he would have stomped in the castle and done the same thing, but it would have been out of a sense of entitlement, where at the end, he did it out of a sense of responsibility. And especially with action like that, why is almost as important. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and if I can touch back for just a second on what Colin had said about, you know, more journey being there, maybe... And, and if Colin were here to answer this, I'd, I'd have to ask him. Maybe he meant that uh, the description of the land itself was missing. Because that's something you get a lot in, like, Tolkien. You get descriptions of the trees. You get descriptions of the mountains. You get all all kinds of stuff like that um, while they're journeying. They don't really... He doesn't really describe the journey. So, I, you know what I mean? Like, maybe that's what he meant. Uh, if anything, I could see that as... as being missed, but I, I don't think it was quite missing. 
but you also get a 1,200-page epic with pages of that describing rocks and trees. Exactly, and that's what I mean. It's not missing from the story, but I can I can understand a person. I can understand that being missed by a reader who's expecting it. So I, I don't know. I wish Colin were here to answer that. I guess the other thing you miss without some of that is the scale of distance they travel. I mean, you get, we traveled three days, but did you get like two miles a day or did you get like 40 miles a day? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yep. I, yeah, I got the impression that these guys didn't go more than maybe 100 miles tops. Another thing I'd like to address with that is that um, I think it makes the book more accessible to people just in general if you cut out a lot of that travel stuff. Um, some of, the, of us hardcore guys might really enjoy it and like the world building, but I think, it, like I said, going back to the, hey, this is a, it's a good young adult, young reader kind of book, that this, that's part of what helps it make it fit that part, is that it, it doesn't kind of bore you out too much with some of the, and yeah, you miss out on some some of the world building and things, but it, it makes it more accessible to people in the long run as an enjoyable book, which in my mind makes it feel like that Princess Bride kind of thing. You know, you don't get the long journey, but you get the struggle, struggle, cliff climb, you know, that that's five minutes, you know, so it's that I, I can give it a pass on that. And that's kind of one of the, just to kind of go back to what we were talking about earlier about wanting more. I think the one time in this book that I felt was kind of completely separate and was more kind of that telling the story is when the elves show up and sort of, first of all, when I, the elves first came into the story, I was like, oh, this is like high fantasy because at that point, I guess I hadn't realized, I thought it was kind of more just humans running around in medieval times. But the fact that he, A, takes kind of the, if you can call it a stereotype for a fake race, um, the stereotype of elves and kind of flips it to where they're sort of the oppressed and not the aloof and and high beings. But then, like, he literally just tells the story of the elves, which I really loved. I thought that that was great, but I didn't think it fit with everything else that was going on. It was kind of like this, this just step aside to explain the actions of this one character later. Well, you get. I got the impression that the elves used to be that high and mighty, loof, greater than civilization. Prior to you know Navrin being born and kind of elevating mankind to the the dominant role there. See, to me, this was a pattern in the book, which makes me think, you know, go back to that the mage going to be up to anything good, because we see that the powerful people are that were in the golden age seem to be have imprisoned, slaughtered, or we turned them into slaves. So that that seems to be uh, to me it indicates that you've got the human and the dwarves maybe working together or whatever it is the other races that go. We don't like this. We can't necessarily beat them, but maybe we can. And so for me, those were patterns that I noticed in the book. It was a nice change. I liked it. Um, it, it was it was something different. I, I think a lot of people, when they play in these worlds, they don't do enough different. Or if they do it, they do it superficially. And like you were saying, there's there's a pattern. And that pattern kind of recurs over and over and over again, which just makes me want to read more about this world. But I didn't get a lot of it in this book. And to kind of continue on with, like, not imaginary races not necessarily matching up to their imaginary stereotypes, if you will. Like, uh, I really enjoyed the scene with the dwarf and Royce in the tower. And, you know, it seemed like the dwarf was kind of using some magical stuff and was kind of doing some traps. Uh, Dwarfs, at least in my mind, are traditionally like they're crafters and they're not much, they're not big fans on trickery or magic. They're, they're pretty straightforward. Um, 
so that that was kind of that that was a nice twist onto me, and I, I I would really like to know more about the elves and the dwarven people, the lore, and you know, because the dwarves almost kind of seem like more jerks than normal. <laughs> so I'd really like to know, like, was that just a really a hole jerk dwarf that we met in this book, or are they all? I, I would really I, I'm looking forward to exploring more on that in other books. That would be cool. Also, I'm Scottish. Dwarves always sound Scottish. I was thankful he did not sound Scottish. He, he did a great voice on that dwarf. I, uh, You know, having read books to my kids and trying to do a gruff voice, it ain't easy to do that for very long. You you get real sore and your voice gets real weak, but he, uh, he stayed strong. I, I got to applaud that. Yeah, it kind of, my just sort of, you know, extrapolating what we know from that one dwarf and, and things, it seems like the world in general has kind of lost magic. But maybe the dwarves have held on to some of it, and they kind of keep it by laying low and not by making it as as big of a deal and not by exercising it. And that almost they might be the most powerful race that's still around, but nobody notices because they're three foot tall. No, no, exactly. Uh, I I had that same feeling, and that was kind of going back with the patterns of the things. It almost made me wonder if the dwarves were really kind of the ones pulling the strings. And I might be jumping ahead a little bit, because this book definitely leads it up to feel like the church is what's pulling the strings. And you've got the church wants to bring the empire back and getting rid of royalty. And so, like, there, there's a lot of threads going on, but... You know, that I was had that thought at one point reading through the book. You know, could this go back to the the dwarves are really the one pulling the strings? You know, kind of in the shadows, underground, out of sight. You know, out of mind. <laughs> but yeah, that might be quite the stretch as well. I think probably in one of the future books, they'll they wind up being a, a piece on the chessboard for sure. Uh, some something that wasn't you weren't expecting. But um, I didn't get the impression that their whole society was like that. Just that this one guy was particularly nasty. Yeah, it seems like the only dwarf stereotype they really kept was the master of stone type thing. Yeah, yeah, the craftsmanship and and explaining away the, you know, their skill as simply craftsmanship and not magic even though it appears to be magic. Uh, I, I love that this was that was something that was the real gem for me in this book. I'd never heard it described this way, but the, the, the dwarf's talking about when he's with Royce in the tower and how he can hear the stone and it sings to him. Uh, you know, that just adds a whole kind of, it's it's a nice twist on the, is it magic? Is it natural? It, you know, you're almost kind of, a, it's, well, it's kind of a spiritual religious thing because it's not necessarily magic, but we, we hear the stone and just the, the way he would describe the lattice work and like in my mind it almost made me think like oh it's like he's describing almost like on a molecular level or like spider webs and it, it was it was very visual and it was very rich i enjoyed it i could i could see that whole scene it was one of the probably best uh in my mind that was just locked in there that i really enjoyed that i completely when I'm in a situation um, like at work where, you know, I'm an expert at something and I've got to come in and figure a situation out, I often think of it as reading the, the situation, reading what's going on there. So when he talked about it singing to him or talking to him, that uh, it was relatable in in a way, but it also kind of conveyed the fact that he's way better at this than I'll ever be at anything. Well, and you also kind of get the being an expert in something t to that degree. People aren't, can't tell if what you're doing is expertise or magic. Yep, that same old saying. 
Does anybody remember the monk's name, by the way? That started with an H. Uh, I keep wanting him Herod, but that was kind of a similar S character from another book. But it, Herod, Hammond, how something started H and a vowel. <laughs> See, I thought it started with an M. No, I can't think of it right now. I, I, I wish I could. Did, I was wondering, did anybody else get choked up when he when he told the story of his twelve year old? buddy who died and he said he couldn't explain it to him because he's only 12 years old i got so choked up that that's that part it was really well done yeah a little bit no and he describes planting him and the treeing and that yeah yeah that that was definitely a, a nice kind of touching scene so it and and, and it it emphasized his innocence, if you will, in the book as well. Which, uh, like, his character was really—I enjoyed it, but I also kind of—I don't know if it's just coincidence, but I've been hitting a, a lot of books recently that have the eidetic memory character, which is—it's um, kind of neat, but it's also kind of a crutch sometimes in a book. Um, it, I didn't have a problem at all with it in this book because he. He had a lot to add, and he also had that innocence factor, so he wasn't just like an overpowered character with too much knowledge or something weird like so it was really interesting balance and it was definitely kind of hard not to like him. He just had that innocence factor with that lots of information it was almost almost kind of like data or something like that you know from Star Trek you just massive amounts of knowledge but no real world experience and just very innocent which he kind of loses when he kills a guy, you know, at one point in rage. And that, that brought it home a lot for me too. You know, there's, so there's a lot of character development that was kind of subtle in the book. And in, and in some ways it's kind of ironic because Hadron or hate two main characters, Hadron and Royce, they, I, I don't know. It was like these, they were kind of like least developed. I don't know. For me, it felt like as far as what you got to know about them and whatnot. So, and I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but that's just kind of how I felt. Well, I think the monk is the one um, character that actually is able to give anybody that history that, that I think a couple of us have said we wanted. Um, he's he's the one way that you can do an info dump of exposition and kind of get away with it because nobody else in the group knew knew it either. Um, that it's it's been so long since anybody knew that stuff that it, it makes sense that he, if he had memorized all that, that he would be the only one to do it. I mean, I can see where he is a crutch to an extent to do some of that exposition, but at least it's a crutch that was wrapped with a good character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it was weird because at first I thought of him as... as... Uh, you know, maybe being like on the the autism spectrum, but he didn't seem to pan out that way. He seemed to be more well adjusted than that, just inexperienced. Here's one thing that I another another thing. This might be my only other real criticism of the book is I didn't feel like um oh boy, what was his name? Was it Percy? The the guy they stole the letters from at the beginning. I didn't feel like it was necessary for him to show up at the end. Uh, I don't know. That that just felt that to me felt a little awkward. Did did anybody else notice that? I'm not sure I thought it felt awkward. I felt like it kind of plumbed together some of the geography of the area, giving more setup for future novels, um, kind of giving you more of an idea of the church's overall plan and maybe a little bit forced as to, you know, tying up loose ends and bringing back someone that we, we started a little bit at the 
going back to talking about it as being a mystery novel just kind of wrapped in fantasy that's the ending of every Agatha Christie novel ever all the players get together in a room and they hash out who did it and I think that um, it, it was a little awkward I think but at the same time I kind of expected it I, it wasn't surprising yeah it wasn't surprising to me either and I don't think it was so awkward that I actually noticed it at first I don't remember thinking that the first two times I listened to it but this most recent time I I did notice and I just think well what what is he doing there what is his purpose in the story in this scene and it didn't he didn't seem to have one uh the the monk's name was Myron Myron thank you I looked it up I cheated I tried looking it up I didn't see it on the page well, thank you <laughs> cuz that was going to bother me all night yeah, me too. Oh, yeah. And speaking of names, I thought he did a really good job with names in this book. A lot of times in fantasy novels, the names seem so contrived. They just, they're they're like getting hit with a bucket of cold water when you meet, you know, some of these people with these weird fantasy names. But I thought these all mostly fit. The only the only two that I, that I felt were a little uh, not contiguous were the prince and the king. I, I didn't think their names seemed like they came from the same family. But other than that, the, none of them seemed out of place, you know, in in a story or or you know what I mean. Like they weren't awkward names like you can get sometimes. Ezra Hodden was a little awkward, but I think that was mostly from being you know a thousand years outside of what everyone else was. Yeah, and I didn't realize until just tonight that Ezra Hodden was a single word. I thought that was like a first and last name. Yeah, that's kind of how it, it sounded and kind of the impression I got as well until I saw it written as a single name. I don't know if it's just how I listened to it or whatever, but the first couple times they mentioned his name, for some, some reason in my mind, it was a title. It wasn't his name, and that's probably just me listening to it wrong, but... Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's an interesting way to look at it. All right, so has anybody got anything else they want to talk about in this book, or are you guys uh, about ready to wrap it up? I've said pretty much everything I have to say. I found I've uh, said pretty much everything I have to say. Humor, uh, where they had uh, the princess on trial, and they were like, oh, she went to school. Burner. Oh, wait, wait, and she does magic. She's a witch, too. Burner. <laughs> that was like, oh, you guys are so backwards. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, that that. That that was a nice scene as well, I guess. But that was the whole castle siege scene, I guess. So yeah, that was about it. I could hear my wife cringing when they had that part. <laughs> She's educated burner. I I kind of like that. My wife's here. Listen, I'm just teasing her. Todd, have you got any closing thoughts? No, I think we pretty much hit everything I had to say about it. Cool, cool. I, I, yeah, I, again, I'll reiterate that I, I hope another one of these comes along, especially in audio format and especially with uh, Nathan Lowell doing the reading. Um, but if we're all done with this one, uh, I think we can announce the next one. Uh, Morgellon came up with a fantastic one. Morgellon, are you, are you free to talk about that one right now? Uh, quickly. Uh, I got horrible audio going here, but... Uh... But yeah, uh, basically it was one of the uh, first patio books that I ran across, and it, it just totally won me over to patio books, because I, I was kind of skeptical at first when I came across the patio books website, and was just kind of, eh, these are all going to be kind of half and blah, and not so good books, and this, is, this has been one of the most fun books that... I've read in a while. It it just had me chuckling, smiling, and very uh, very 
very thoughtful, lots of, lots of stuff to think about through this book. And it was just, it was, it was a real gem. So, uh, yeah, I'd like to share that. <laughs> well, go ahead, man. We're on pins and needles here. Oh, oh, and then see, that's the bad thing. Now I can't even remember the title. What was the title, my friend? You, you helped me out with that. It, <laughs> <laughs> right on. It was How to Succeed in Evil, the novel by Patrick E. McLean. Um, and there's two versions of this. So don't, uh, anyone who wants to join in next time or wants to listen to it, don't confuse it with uh, How to Succeed in Evil, the original podcast. This is, uh, he, he took his original podcast, he polished it up. He rewrote it, and he made a novel out of it, and that's the one we're going to do uh, for the next show, How to Succeed in Evil, the novel by Patrick E. McLean. Uh, this is available on patiobooks.com, and there will be a link in the show notes for this one as well. And uh, just to encourage people to listen to this one, I will say that I've also listened to this one multiple times, and uh, it, it's one of my favorites, and, and I know it's one of my mom's favorites. And I don't remember how family friendly it is probably not it's probably okay for for you know to recommend to your mom but not to your daughter <laughs> or to my mom but not my daughter i'll put it that way i think there were a couple scenes in there that i wouldn't want kids listening to uh immature kids anyway i'll, I'll agree with that what's the, what's the process for uh suggesting a book um well basically the the newest guy <laughs> usually the newest uh, participant i should say usually is the person that does it and i happened to ask morgellon uh before the show so we just went with it um there's really not much of a process other than that if you've got one uh to suggest we could probably do that next time i'll shoot you an email about it okay though i i do want to say uh one that I really, really would like to get to at some point. It's it's not finished quite yet, but at some point when it is finished, it, I, I think we have to review uh, Street Candles by our very own Lost in Bronx. Um, he's one of our community members, and I've been listening to this audiobook of his, and it is astonishing good. It is it's it's stupendous and we must cover it once it's finished uh whether that's on the next show or the show after or somewhere down the road i, I can't remember he told me how many more episodes he had for it but I, I don't recall but when that's done oh man you guys have to hear it it's it's fantastic i would like to second that uh this lost in bronx this guy is awesome he's live streaming his recordings of the book as he's doing them so you can get on a google hangout with him when he does this and listen to each chapter live it's it's really fun uh like i'm i'm delivering i'm at my pizza job and i'll join the hangout with my phone you know and i'm listening of course but yeah it's just awesome to tune into a live story here and there when i have the opportunity he's doing a really cool job with it so I'd like to, anybody out there that's listening to it may be interested, you know, maybe catch up on them and listen to the, some of the, the live stuff. It's, it's very fun. I'd like to see more people do that. That's awesome. I listened to Star Drifter and I loved it. And I didn't know that he was, had even started the second one yet. So now I know what I'm going to be wasting my time with. I'm also on board listening to uh, Lost in Bronx novel. I've heard, uh, heard about the process for a while now. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's sci-fi, and I will say, Taj, if you liked Star Drifter, um, tighten your seatbelts for Street Candles. <laughs> it's it's uh, 
they're not quite in the same league. <laughs> and I, I don't think Lost in Bronx would uh, take offense to me saying that. But but one one is a is a novella, uh, and and one is a, a more than a full length novel. And he really stepped up to to fill those pages. Um, not that not that uh, Star Drifter was bad at all. It was I thought it was terrific. But um, I just mean that if you, you won't believe how how different and and full and rich it is awesome i'm looking forward to it yeah so uh we won't do that one this time that's that's down the road because it's not done just yet um but we, we definitely got to do it so for next time anyone wants to join us though it's how to succeed in evil the novel uh on patiobooks.com uh, I want to thank all you guys for, for joining me tonight. Um, I was really worried that um, people were losing interest in the audiobook club. Uh, and it, it happened right at, at the time where HPR is at a, a kind of low in the queue. We don't have a lot in our in our queue. And uh, we may resort to the backup queue this week. Um, I hope that doesn't come to pass. Uh, but it, it kind of came at a low point. And I was really a little worried. And um, you guys showed up. Morgellon, Taj, X1101, um, Colin, who wrote in, and a couple other people. Uh, Jonathan Nato said he was going to try to make it 5150. I knew try to make it. And the, the timing just couldn't be there. But even just saying that they, they wanted to be there and, and couldn't because of timing uh, was just the, the morale boost that I need personally. And uh, I just want to thank you guys all for helping out the book club and Hacker Public Radio, and 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 thank everyone for listening too, of course. But uh, but you guys who who show up and do the work, um, you know, you, you're the core of HBR, and and just thank you so much for that. Yeah, I just want to add to that, and the this is my first time being on here, but that's never been because I haven't loved the audiobook series. I've been following it since before it stopped with Space Casey. I um, I think Space Casey was actually the first one I listened to instead of just kind of following along, and then it stopped for like a year, and I was like, but nobody's talking about it. So I'm super glad to be back. I'm uh, that it's that it's going on, and I'll try to be here as often as I can. Uh, a lot of it just has to do with scheduling, you know, that's life. But uh, Pokey. Don't ever think people don't don't love it and don't appreciate it, man. All right, well, thank you. I, I knew people loved the first couple, but you know, of course, we had uh, you know superstars on there. We had you know Dan Washko and and Klaatu was on uh, at least one of them. Um, you know, we had uh, Integral. I mean, geez, <laughs> you know. So I, I I I never I never assume it's because of me that anybody likes something that I'm involved in. I just try to facilitate, you know. Oh, dude, we appreciate the work. And like I said, keep in mind, dude, it's it's starting to get warm in summertime. And it's the phase of things. This will happen. So hang in there, dude. And because you know you've got me and lots of other people that really enjoy what 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 goes on. So and like I said, people like you that are the backbone of these things really help keep it along for the, us people that phase in and out. And yeah, so thank you. Well, yeah, and and, and that uh, I have phased out quite a bit in the last several months i've just been really busy with family stuff um taking up hunting and, and that being a family activity uh it's i have not been here nearly as much as as you would think and there are people sticking around uh and and working on things in the background uh you know got ken fallon i mean you know he's he's just uh, a saint work he does um I, I, I'm not going to start listing. I shouldn't start listing because there's so many people who are involved and I, I won't remember them all. And that's, you know, shame on me for that. But uh, yeah, just thanks to everybody. HPR is fantastic. Thank you. Every keeps it going. And I have to say, I'm fairly new to the HPR key, but I absolutely love it. 
I'm pretty new as well, and everybody has been open arms. So if you haven't recorded a show, get on it. Do it now. It takes five minutes. Now do it. Especially now, because as Pokey was saying, we, we need shows. Yeah, and, and it's not just that we need shows. Um, the people who listen to HPR, uh, to a person, everyone I've met, everyone I've spoken to, everyone I've corresponded with, everyone's been a fantastic person. If you're listening to this, uh, by default, you get the thumbs up from the rest of us. We're eager to hear your content. Um, it's It's... You know, we try to say it as much as we can uh, that we really try to be welcoming. I mean, that's kind of our thing. Um, I know that, the, the, you know, the name of it is Hacker Public Radio, which would imply that we're primarily about hacking. But more and more, uh, you know, throughout the years, I think we're primarily about being nice to people. Everyone at HPR seems to be nice to one another. And... Whatever particular hack you're into, that's that's the kind of hacking that we make it revolve around. But really, it's it's the community. It's about just being cool with one another, and that's what makes it so much fun to me. Well, it's about a much more classic meaning of the word hacker. You know, it's someone of curiosity and some interest in something. Exactly, exactly. And uh, and if you're listening, we want you to be part of it. So, uh, you know, come on, join us now and share the software. Oh, sorry, Ken, that's your song. You'll be free. Hackers, you'll be free. The free software song is spoken. We need somebody to beat a drum or something. Or, I don't know, Smoky Room. How did they used to do that? All right, anyway, we got to wrap it up. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, everyone, for joining in. Uh, and uh, have a great night, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Good night, everybody. night, everyone. Thank you. Later, guys. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HPR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All Binrev projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license. Oh hey, was was a, a month uh, warning? Was that enough for everybody? Should we go to two months, or I mean, should we meet up next month, or, or is Tuesdays okay? What are you guys thinking about the scheduling of this? I like uh, a month. Any, um, I, I I'll burn through books. So pretty much any book that we put out, like I can go through in a day or two. So I'm abnormal on that. But I think if we go anything longer than a month or so, people that read the book, you're going to forget parts, stuff like that. And it, I don't know. I, I think one a month gives us 12 books a year to go through and gives nice reviews and people can jump in and jump out and that way if there's a book that somebody's not interested in they can skip that month but know that next month there's another book that they'll probably be interested in so i I think a month is a, a good period between
Yeah, I agree. I think a month is pretty good. I finished this one, and I've been kind of holding off starting something else until I found out um, what the next book was going to be. Um, but this was a short book, so I think if we had a longer book, like it seems to be the next one's going to be a little longer if the number of chapters are any indication, which it probably isn't. Um, uh, you should be able to get it done in a month. The Tuesday nights works for me now. Up until this week, it didn't, so my schedule changes a lot just because of my job. So, I mean, wherever it is, it might be a problem. It might not, but I, I definitely want to keep trying to come on. Cool. Yeah. My schedule changes to mostly around family and, and, uh, you know, like my wife's work schedule and my daughter's school schedule and that kind of thing. But, uh, I, I kind of, I kind of like patch Tuesday cause just cause it's easy to remember. And it's kind of cheeky to say that, you know, we, we won't be needing to do that tonight. We can do this instead. <laughs> I like that, man. I like it a lot. Um, I'm good to join pretty much any night, uh, you know, as long as it's in the evening. Um, if I'm wor- working, I can do it from the pizza job here. As long as uh, my random you know, changes are okay. I don't know how bad I sounded tonight. So. I run Arch. Every Tuesday is Patch Tuesday. <laughs> sandwich. And Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. And... I was going to say sandwiched right in between Patch Monday and Patch Wednesday. Sad but true. All right. Oh, I don't know. I see frequent patching as a positive. That's a good thing. And I don't even use Arch. No, I'm an Arch user. I'm, I'm totally down for the everyday thing. It's just, you know, sometimes, it, it you know, you just a constant seeing an update is ready. All right, cool. All right, with that, we're going to cut it off.